Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for giving us your word. We ask that you will help us this morning to understand what is being said. Help us to think through how it might apply to us now, thousands of years later, and help us to be faithful in understanding, applying and living what you say to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, today, I want to ask you a, a rude question. This is probably something you feel a bit guilty about. And so when I ask you, you might feel a bit upset with me. Are you ready? Here it is. When was the last time you seriously had a talk with a non-Christian about Jesus? When was the last time you told a non-Christian about Jesus? How's it going at work or uni or school or with your neighbours or with the mums in mother's group or at school or with the people at bowls or golf? How's it going with your non-Christian family? It's not easy, is it? It's not easy to talk to people about Jesus. Most people out there are stubborn and hard-hearted towards God. They don't want to know, and they don't want you to tell them. And if you do talk to them about Jesus, they will think you're some kind of a religious nutter, some kind of a fanatic. I remember back many years ago in the days when I had a real job, um, I tried all kinds of ways of talking to people in the court about Jesus. But it was mostly like banging my head against a brick wall. People were stubborn. They didn't want to hear what I had to say. I'm not aware of anyone becoming a Christian under my influence at work. All I managed to do was offend people. And when I offended people, it was dead set uncomfortable. Because I was working with them. And I had to go back and face them the next day. And the next day. And the next day. It is hard, isn't it? It's hard to keep talking about Jesus. It's much easier to give up. It's much easier to just zip the lip, keep quiet. And according to a 1980 Gallup poll of American churches, that's what more than 90% of Christians do. They never talk to non-Christians about Jesus. They're the silent majority, so to speak. Is that what's happened to you? Have you given up talking to non-Christians about Jesus? Or maybe you never started in the first place. Are you part of this silent majority? Well, today we start this new series in the book of Ezekiel. So let's, uh, let's dive in and have a look at it. Chapter 1 and verse 1 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel himself speaks to us and he gives us a bit of background about what's happening, what the book's on about. He tells us that he saw visions of God. He says it happened in the 30th year, maybe that's how old he was, uh, and he says he was living with the exiles near the Kabar River. The Kabar River is a nice way of talking about a drainage canal that went into the Euphrates River. It's a backwater. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. 
Who's the I? What's going on? In verse 2 we get an editorial comment, maybe by Ezekiel, maybe by someone else, but it it explains a little bit more for us. Uh, We're told the date as the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin of Judah. We're told Ezekiel's name, his name means uh, God hardens or God strengthens. We're told his dad's name. We're told that Ezekiel's a priest. We're told that he's in Babylon. We're told that God's word came to him. God's hand was on him. Verse 2. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. So, so there's our background. That's the, uh, the, the setting for the book. Historically, it was in the year 597 BC that King Jehoiachin was taken into exile. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and smashed, defeated the, uh, the, 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 the uh, Jews, Judah and Jerusalem. And he took King Jehoiachin and the leading citizens away into Babylon. And that included people you may know about, people like Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and uh, this priest, this young priest, Ezekiel. And so if we're in the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, that puts us in 593 BC. Now Nebuchadnezzar at this point had set up King Jehoiachin's uncle as the king in Jerusalem. He, He was a bloke by the name of Zedekiah. And he said, Zedekiah, you've got to submit to the power of the Babylonian Empire. And in 593, as we kick off this book, that's what was happening. Zedekiah is ruling under the Babylonian authority in Jerusalem. But as it turns out, this was only the beginning of the end for the nation of Judah. From here, things got worse and worse. In a few years, Zedekiah got a bit smart, uh, thought that he would rebel against King Nebuchadnezzar. And so about 588 BC, Nebuchadnezzar showed up, uh, set a siege around Jerusalem. And 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar completely smashes Judah and Jerusalem, totally destroys it, raises it to the ground and destroys the temple as well, flattens it completely. Thousands upon thousands of Jews were killed and more of them were taken into exile. As we make our way through this book of Ezekiel, we will see this terrible story, this tragedy unfold. So here we are in this book of Ezekiel, right in the middle of the process of Judah going into exile. It's the darkest period in Old Testament history. Ezekiel himself is in exile. He's He's stuck in a backwater out in the middle of Babylon, far away from home. But out here, Ezekiel sees a vision of God. And in the rest of chapter 1, he tells us about it. It starts off as a a terrible storm coming from the north. Look with me at verse 4. I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. And then from inside the storm, Ezekiel sees four winged creatures, each with four faces. Next to each creature is a wheel full of eyes. The creatures with their wings are holding up a platform. And seated on the platform is a throne and uh, the likeness of the glory of the Lord, uh, like a man but shining with fire and flame and with radiance around him like a rainbow. Now here uh, up on the screen, thanks Steve, is an artist's impression of what Ezekiel saw. If you put it all together, it's a picture of a chariot. Can you see that? Held up by the wheels and by these uh, uh, four 
headed, uh, four, four-faced creatures. Now, chapter 10, we find out that these creatures are cherubim, that it's a kind of an angel. And this chariot is ferrying God around the place. I think it might be another picture as well, is there, Steve? There you go, there's somebody else's attempt at it. Can you see with their wings, they're holding up this, uh, this cloud or expanse. Probably a better word is, is a platform. And then on the platform is God. So it's a, it's a chariot ferrying God around. Thanks, Steve. Now, a couple of things to notice. First, we've got to remember, as Ezekiel writes, the temple is still in Jerusalem. You would expect that if you're going to see a vision of God, you will see him on his throne in the temple like Isaiah does. But no. God isn't tied to the temple. God is on the move, for good or ill. And second, this is not exactly a comforting sight, is it? God is coming like a storm from the north. The north is where Israel's enemies come from, the the Babylonians, the Assyrians. God is coming with fire and lightning. No wonder Ezekiel sees it and he falls flat on his face. This is a scary vision, an awesome, terrifying sight. But God doesn't destroy Ezekiel. Instead, God speaks to him. He says, Ezekiel, I've got a job for you. He says, I'm sending you to the Israelites and you have to speak my word to them. But God warns Ezekiel. He says, it's not going to be easy. They never listen. They're stubborn and rebellious. God says to Ezekiel, you will get into all kinds of trouble. But he says, I want you to tell them anyway. Chapter 2 and verse 3. Chapter 2 and verse 3. So here's God speaking from the throne above the cherubim. He said, Son of man, which just means man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. God then gives Ezekiel his word. In the vision, Ezekiel eats it. He takes God's word into himself. And we see that it is a word of judgment, of lament and mourning and woe. Verse 8. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. And it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Ezekiel's got God's word inside him. And now God says, go, it's going to be hard. He says, it'd be easier to talk to pagans who don't even speak your language than to rebellious Israel. Israel will be stubborn, hard-headed. Chapter 3, verse 4. 4. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. 
You're not being sent to a people of obscure speech and difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of obscure speech and difficult language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I'd sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they're not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. Israel are going to be hard-headed and stubborn. But God has a promise for Ezekiel. Not the kind of promise you'd expect. Not, uh, but I'll help, help them to listen to you or, uh, or I'll show miracles and then they'll understand. God's got a bit of a strange promise for Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel, well, they're hard-headed, but I'm going to make your head even harder. He says, Ezekiel, you're going to live up to your name. Your name means God hardens, and I'm going to harden your head harder than a rock. That's what I'll do for you. Verse 8. But I'll make you as unyielding and hardened as they are, as azeked as they are. Or better, it sounds better in Hebrew, as chazaked as they are. I'll make your forehead like the chazak a stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. Well, with the vision finished, Ezekiel goes back to the exiles and doesn't say a word. He's totally overwhelmed. He doesn't say anything to them. For seven days he sits there in stunned silence. And so God speaks to Ezekiel again. He says to Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman. Now a watchman is like a guard of a city. He has to warn when the enemy is approaching. But notice who the enemy is here. It's God himself. Ezekiel has to warn Israel about the coming judgment of God. Ezekiel has to warn the wicked to turn from their ways. He has to warn the righteous to stick with it. And God says to Ezekiel, if you don't do it, if you won't open your mouth and warn them, I will hold you accountable for their blood. Chapter 3, verse 16. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man, and he does not turn from his wickedness and from his evil ways, he'll die for his sin, but you'll have saved yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil and I put a stumbling block before him, he'll die. Since you did not warn him, he'll die for his sin. The righteous things he did will not be remembered and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the righteous man not to sin and he does not sin, he'll surely live because he took warning and you'll have saved yourself. Ezekiel's accountable as a watchman. And then in a very strange section, this next, next section, God then silences Ezekiel. So he cannot say or do anything except when God speaks to him. Ezekiel's locked up in his house, tied down, and God holds his tongue so he can't pray for Israel or rebuke them or mediate for them. The only time that Ezekiel will speak for the next seven years will be to prophesy God's word of judgment. Pick it up in verse 26. Verse 26, God says, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be silent and unable to rebuke or perhaps mediate for them, though they are a rebellious house. But when I speak to you, 
I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Okay, so that's chapters 1 to 3, a bit of a wild ride as, uh, as Warren warned us, isn't it? Ezekiel has seen God and God's given him his job. He has to tell everyone about God's coming judgment, even though everyone's going to hate him for it, even though it won't do them the slightest bit of good at all, even though it's only going to make them more accountable before God, that's the job. Tough job, don't you think? Perhaps you make you uh, feel more comfortable in your own job. Not a job for the faint-hearted. But did you notice God's given Ezekiel three things that he needs? Three things that are going to make it possible for Ezekiel to stick with it. First, Ezekiel has his vision. He has seen the greatness and terror of God on his chariot. He knows who he really needs to be scared of, and it's not people. Second, Ezekiel has the word of God. He's munched it down. It's inside him. And third, God has given Ezekiel a hard head. Uh, to keep on banging his head against the brick wall of Israel. Tough job, but he's got what he needs. Now, now in many ways, it's obvious that this part of Ezekiel chapters 1 to 3 is a very unique and personal part of the Bible. This is Ezekiel's own personal call to be God's prophet to Israel in exile. And we've got to keep that in mind as we, as we think about how to apply God's word here to ourselves. Now, I don't anticipate that you or I will be given the same vision of God that Ezekiel saw. I don't anticipate that you or I will be personally commissioned by God to be a watchman, like Ezekiel was. And, of course, we don't need to tell uh, God's people about the judgment that is coming on Israel in 586 BC. It's long gone. We want to see this passage for what it is. This is Ezekiel's personal call to a ministry to the Israelites in exile in the 6th century BC. But still, there are good reasons to say that this passage applies to you and me here in Chatswood today. Let me see if I can convince you. To start with, we are dealing with the same God as Ezekiel was dealing with. This this God on his chariot is not an idol. This God on his chariot is the true God. This this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our God. And and don't think that this is the Old Testament God of judgment or something like that, and now there's no judgment in the New Testament. We just saw in Acts last year that, that God is still a God of judgment. In fact, now God has set the day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. God is still a God of judgment. Judgment is still coming, just like it was in Ezekiel's day. And the world is still like Israel was in Ezekiel's day, isn't it? Most people are still hard-headed when it comes to God. They are stubborn and unrepentant. They don't want to know about God's coming judgment. Ezekiel's God is our God. Judgment is still coming. People still are stubborn. And uh, even though we're not prophets in quite the same way as Ezekiel, the Bible is clear that we are, in fact, prophets. God has given us his word about the Lord Jesus. As the Bible says, the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
In Acts chapter 2 last year, we saw that all Christians are now gifted with God by his Holy Spirit and called to be prophets, speaking his word, speaking his message of the gospel. God has made you and me prophets. And he's told us to tell the world about Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's told us do whatever we can to help people be saved from this coming judgment. Philippians chapter 2 talks about us shining like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life to a crooked and depraved generation. Colossians chapter 4, God says, make and take opportunities to talk to outsiders about Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells his disciples, go, make disciples. We are dealing with uh, Ezekiel's unique experience here in chapters 1 to 3, but yet his God is our God. Uh, His message of judgment, well, we still have a message of judgment. His stubborn audience, well, we still have a stubborn audience. And like Ezekiel, we've been told to go and warn them. So I reckon we can learn from Ezekiel here. I reckon in these first three chapters, we can particularly learn these three things that God gave Ezekiel to persevere, to stick with it, so he wouldn't be part of the silent majority. I reckon we need them for our mission. So let's look at these three things for ourselves. Our first, like Ezekiel, we need to get our vision clear. We need to see the awesomeness of God and his judgment. Now, we probably won't get a direct vision of it like Ezekiel, but we've got to be aware that it's true. The God Ezekiel saw is our God. He is mighty and majestic in holiness. God has raised Jesus to life as the king and the judge. Because of people's stubborn and unrepentant hearts, the Bible says they've been storing up wrath against themselves for the day of God's wrath, and the day is coming. The Bible says the day will soon come when every knee will bow. The Bible says the day will soon come when we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due. The Bible says that Jesus will soon come with the two-edged sword in his mouth, fighting against the nations and destroying his enemies. The Bible says that the day will soon come when anyone whose name is not written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. We need to get perfectly clear about this. This is the people you're working with. This is your family if they don't trust in Jesus. This is your friends if they are not relying on Jesus. God is coming in judgment and it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you know that? Do you recognise the might and awe and majesty and terror of the true God? Do you feel it? Or have you maybe domesticated him in your mind? Have you, have you turned, him into, turned him into some kind of fluffy toy idol? We need to get the vision back. We need to see the terror of God's coming judgment because it is only then that we will flee for refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only then that we will beg people to come with us. It is only then that we will have the courage to plead with people, to open our mouths and plead with people to escape the coming wrath. We need Ezekiel's vision of God because it's true. 
second. Second, like Ezekiel, we need to eat up God's word. That is, we need to know the biblical gospel. We need to know God's message about Jesus. We need to have deeply imbibed it. As it says in Colossians, we need to let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. We need to be reading God's word day by day. We need to know how to share our faith. Maybe even have a gospel outline memorised in your head so you can faithfully tell it to people. We might do a seminar or something like that uh, as part of our open week in June. We need to eat God's word. We need, we need Ezekiel's vision of God. We need to eat up God's word. And then finally, we need to get hard heads. Now, let's face it. We are very timid about our evangelism, aren't we? We are terrified of offending people. We're mortified the idea that anybody would think that we are religious. We tiptoe around people like we're treading on eggshells. It's time to get over it. The fact is, if you share the gospel, you will make people cranky. I know you're a lovely, sensitive person, but if you actually share the gospel, you will make people cranky. I know you're perfectly sane, but if you share the gospel, people will think you are crazy. If you wait for the right time, you'll be waiting forever. If you wait until it's going to be easy, you'll be waiting forever. People are hardened in sin. People are stubborn. People don't want to hear God's message. And so if we're going to open our mouths, we're going to have to be like Ezekiel. We need to be even more stubborn about sharing the gospel than they are in not wanting to hear it. We need to keep on making and taking opportunities to talk about Jesus, even when they don't want to know. As I was writing this talk uh, the other day, I took a break and walked up to my letterbox here and I ran into Val Kerr. Many of you know Val Kerr, who used to come to this church. We had a bit of a chat and she asked me, Jeff, how can I pray for Chatswood Presbyterian? You know what I said? I told her what I was doing in Ezekiel and I said, Val, would you please ask God to give us hard heads? Pray that Chatswood Presbyterian will be hard-headed about sharing the message of Jesus. Maybe that could be your prayer. I don't know if you've ever prayed it before. I haven't before this week. Maybe it could be your prayer for yourself. Maybe it could be your prayer for us. Pray that God will give us hard heads. Pray that God will help us be even more stubborn in sharing the gospel than people are in rejecting it. Pray that God will help us as we keep on banging our heads against the brick walls of our family and friends and workmates. Are you part of the silent majority? Then let's be inspired by what God did for Ezekiel. Let's, let's join the vocal minority. Renew your vision of God. Eat up his word and ask him for a hard head. So you keep on talking. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're sorry that we are so uh, timid. We're sorry that we're so scared of people. We're sorry that we have such a small, domesticated vision of you that we could conceivably be silent and, and embarrassed. Our Father, please help us to see who you really are. Please help us to see the truth of your coming judgment. Please help us to know and to imbibe your word. And Father, please give us the guts 
to stand up and talk about Christ, to stand up and be known as Christians, to stand up and share the message. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.